Well, if you have your Bible, turn me to Philippians chapter 1. This is week 3 of our uh, study through the book of Philippians. We're going through, uh, we, we tend to do is go through books of the Bible kind of section by section. This morning we'll be covering the last part of verse 18 through verse 26. My initial plan was to go all the way through third, verse 30, but it's so rich and dense that I just thought let's, uh, there's no reason uh, to rush through this. You know, one of the ministries we have here is, uh, at Capshaw is our ministry to the Limestone Correctional Facility. And with many prison ministries, this won't surprise you, uh, you don't often see the fruit right away. Although we have a handful of volunteers that go in, and this is before COVID, every Tuesday they spend hours leading worship and making disciples and teaching and praying with folks there. And, um, and they are making a tremendous difference. In fact, I got a text this week. Uh, the prison chaplain said, we really miss your servants. Things have gotten way worse. There were, uh, they're averaging four stabbings a, a week now, which is just unbelievable. Um, just last week, there was a, uh, someone was killed uh, by way of mistaken identity. So someone killed another person. They killed the wrong person. Uh, well, when our servants go in and our volunteers go in and, and they, they serve that uh, that prison, they bring back with them prayer requests that we divvy up among our staff and we pray for. They're, they're usually very long requests. They're handwritten. Uh, they cover things like emotional needs and spiritual needs, physical needs, relational needs. And we pray for those. You know, again, we, we kind of divvy them up and we pray for those. And we wait to hear reports on what God will do. Um, but as you might expect, even though the, the, the requests are different because they come from different people, they do have a similar tone. In fact, if I were to characterize the, the tone of the requests we get from the prisons, I would use words like desperate, there's a sense of desperation, uh, hopeless. Many of the men there, they have no release date, and so they're absolutely hopeless. They, 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 they have no idea what's ahead of them. Maybe a word that would best describe the overall sort of sense is resignation. There is this idea that I would love for things to change. I don't know how they're going to change. In fact, they may not ever change, or at least not anytime soon. Now, you don't have to be in prison, of course, to feel a sense of resignation. Maybe for you, you're in this, this holding pattern with COVID-19, and, and it just seems like life is never going to get any better. You are at your wit's end. You're stressed out. You're emotionally drained. And your question is, God, when will things change for me? Well, speaking of prisons, the letter that we're looking at now, the letter uh, by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi was written by Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, being a Roman citizen, he, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, uh, but things were not good. He was shackled to a Roman soldier. He was confined to a small and dark space. And yet, even in the middle of that, what do we see? We don't see violence. We don't see hopelessness. We don't even see a sense of resignation. We see incredibly, audaciously, that's why I gave the series the title that I did, we see joy. And this morning, as we continue to work our way through, we're going to see a, really the depth of that joy at a new level. We're going to see three things this morning as we work our way through the text. We're going to see the source of true joy, the fruit of true joy, and we're going to see the goal of joy. So the source, the fruit, and the joy. Let's look at the text of Scripture together, beginning with the last part of verse 18. The word of the Lord reads this way, Yes, and I will rejoice, 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So, uh, Pastor Brandon covered the section last week while I was dropping off my, my two middle kids uh, at college, which was a bittersweet experience, and, but uh, Pastor Brandon covered it so well. Paul, is, he's, he sees other people preaching Christ, and he knows that they're preaching from impure motives, maybe for selfish gain, but he says, what does it matter? I'm, I'm glad. As long as Christ is being preached, I will rejoice. And then the section I just began with uh, today, Paul says, and I will continue, I will rejoice, Paul makes the conscious decision to rejoice. And just in case we might think this is some sort of manufactured positivity or, or Paul sort of finding the strength within, he actually tells us how he could rejoice. Paul's joy was possible because of the empowering presence of Christ's Spirit, which was mediated at least in part through the prayers of God's people. There is this recurring tension that I've mentioned before in this letter of Philippians, and, and that is Paul will say, he says, I, I, this is the idea that whatever good that I do, it's actually Christ in me. And whatever progress I make in my faith, whatever advancement I make in my sanctification, it's actually Christ at work in me. And here he says, I will rejoice, I'm committed to rejoicing, but I recognize that my ability to rejoice is actually rooted in the very presence of the Spirit of Christ in me. Again, which is experienced in part through the prayers of God's people. For those of us who are committed to sort of a high view of God's sovereignty, we believe that God's sovereign over all things and nothing happens outside of God's divine decree, we can also find that we have a low view, at least in practice, of prayer. Now, we might not, we don't say that, but we don't pray with the urgency that we ought to muster. We don't pray believing the way that we should at times. Even though the Scriptures are replete with this notion that God works through the prayers of His people. God's people flourish as God's people pray. I've shared with you before, sort of when I became a believer, pre-teens, I, I started, all I listened to for a little while was gospel music. And I don't mean contemporary Christian music. I don't mean Southern gospel. I mean gospel music. So while my friends were listening to, they were, they were blasting uh, Sandy Patty. Uh, I don't guess you really blast Sandy Patty. You kind of let her angelic voice wash over you. But wh whatever it was, they had Sandy Patty. I was listening to Al Green and uh, Teddy Huffam and the Gems and the Soul Stirs. And there was one song that I had on repeat by the Soul Stirs. Sam Cooke was the lead singer. It was a song called Couldn't Hear Nobody Pray. And in this song, Sam Cooke laments that he's going through all these struggles and he knows that he's struggling the way that he is because nobody's praying for him. Uh, one person who really understood this well was Martin Luther, uh, commissioned with the task of translating the New Testament into German. Luther languished fruitlessly in the Wartburg Castle in July of 1521. And he wrote this, I sit here at ease, hardened and unfeeling, alas, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh, 
It comes to this, I should be a fire in the spirit. In reality, I'm a fire in the flesh with lust, laziness, idleness, sleepiness. It is perhaps, this is his conclusion, it is perhaps because you have all ceased praying for me that God has turned away from me. For the last eight days, I've written nothing, nor prayed, nor studied, partly from self-indulgence, partly from another vexatious handicap. I really cannot stand it any longer, he writes. Pray for me. I beg you, for in my seclusion, here I am, submerged in sins. Now, it's usually not a good idea to blame your struggles on someone else. Um, But what Luther says is, I'm not making any progress in this task. I'm failing miserably. I'm lusting. I'm lazy. I'm sleepy. And I think it's probably because, at least in part, you're not praying for me. Martin Luther understood what the Apostle Paul understood so well and communicates here, that in order for us to thrive spiritually, it happens as God's people pray. And this is why, as elders, even as we kind of navigate all this COVID stuff, and we, we really long for your prayers. We want you to pray, and we're grateful for the way that so many uh, are praying for us. And we pray for you, and when you send in your requests, uh, we pray for those. We're faithful to bring those uh, to the Lord. Paul says, He has chosen to be joyful, and it is a choice that's made possible by the Spirit of Christ in him, which he experiences most fully as God's people pray. And then he says in verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this this requires some explanation. What sort of deliverance does the Apostle Paul anticipate? Does he believe that he's going to be released from prison because God's people are praying? Maybe, but probably not. This is probably not what he's talking about. That word translated uh, deliverance, soteria, is the word for salvation. Sometimes it refers to salvation from a set of circumstances, maybe physical ills or emotional ills, but most of the time, and I think here, it's actually a reference to God's ultimate salvation. So what Paul is saying here is not saying that I know because you're praying for me I'm going to be released from prison. What he's saying is whether, whether I'm convicted of a crime, whether I'm sentenced to death, whether I'm released to live my regular life, I know that I will be delivered in that I will be able to stand before God as a man not condemned because of Christ. You say, well, how do you know that's what it means? Well, verse 20 says, shows us that Paul had this eager hope and expectation, what? That he would not be ashamed. And this has a double meaning. Paul believes that because of Christ's power within him, he would not be ashamed in the sense that he would not deny Christ. But even bigger than that, Paul has a confidence that he himself will never be put to shame. In other words, he would be declared guiltless when he stands before the true judge's seat. This is not Paul simply saying, look, I know I'm so grateful that you're praying for me, my friends, and I know because you pray for me, I will never reject Jesus. I will never be ashamed. Again, it goes beyond that. Paul is saying what he said in other letters. He's saying no one who trusts in the Lord Jesus will ever be put to shame. Even though I may be accused, and even though people point at me from all around, they're saying, you're guilty. You did this. You got yourself into this. You need to die. Paul says, I know. I know I won't be ashamed. I know when I stand before God, my Maker and my Redeemer, that I will, ha- I will not be ashamed, but I will actually be declared righteous, not guilty, 
in the eyes of God. It's kind of reminiscent of, remember Job, when Job's going through all the suffering and his friends come along and they have all this sort of bad advice for him and they say, what you need to do is you need to repent from your sins. That's the problem. You have all this sin you haven't acknowledged before the Lord. And Job says in chapter 13, you smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Indeed, and here's that same phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul's great hope here, similar to Job, who was looking forward to the coming Redeemer, is that even though every human court may declare me guilty and remind me of my guilt, the great judge sees me as innocent of all my offenses because of Jesus Christ and His sin-canceling death on the cross. Here's our first point as it relates to the source of joy. True joy has as its source a confidence in Christ's saving power, the promise of God's not guilty verdict pronounced on those who believe. See, Paul doesn't know if he's going to be released. He doesn't know when he's going to be released. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know if he's going to die anytime soon. Uh, But what he does know is that he will be welcomed into God's eternal presence where there there are endless pleasures. And because of that reality, his sure position with God in Christ, he says, even though I suffer, yet I will rejoice because I know I will not be ashamed. The promise of God's not guilty verdict is really the starting point of the source of joy, we might say. Now, think about it this way. Let's just take a quick mental inventory. Think about it this way. When do you find yourself the most joyless? In other words, when, when, when do you find that you are the most overcome with sadness, depression, anxiety, whatever it is? There, there are a lot of joy thieves, of course. Prolonged sickness can be one. We have a man in our church who has dealt with, with pain for years. And certainly when you're going through illness or sickness or physical pain, that can be a thief of joy. Loneliness can, can rob us, threaten to rob us of our joy. Fear is a real joy thief. Uncertainty. Broken relationships can absolutely... Uh, threaten our joy. These are all legitimate joy threats. But isn't the greatest thief of joy, isn't the greatest thief of joy guilt? Isn't it when you've blown it, you've sinned against someone else, you've sinned against God, and you just feel that guilt, that it just, it robs you of joy? Isn't it when you've hurt someone you love, you've wronged someone you love, that you feel the deepest sort of sadness? Isn't it when you feel judged, you feel condemned by God or by someone else? Those are the times when joy seems impossible to find. In counseling victims of abuse, one of the first and most critical steps is actually helping them to see that they're not to blame. That whatever happened to them, the abuse, the assault, the neglect, the betrayal, whatever it is that's happened to them, it's not their fault. Because as long as they feel guilty, 
humanly speaking, joy will be completely impossible to find. Well, here Paul's confidence is not that he's going to be released from prison. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he's confident in that not only will the risen Christ enable him to continue in boldness and courage, but Paul will be able to stand unashamed in the presence of God by faith in Jesus, both in life and in death, because of Christ's righteousness credited to him. And this is your story as well. And this is my story. If you've trusted in Christ, God has pronounced you. He has forever declared you not guilty. There's no sin. There's no failure. There's no offense that God is holding against you, even this moment. There's not even one that He remembers for that matter. When God forgives, He forgives totally because He is a loving and forgiving God. And that forgiveness is complete. It's done. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then this morning you stand righteous before God and He's never going to retract it. He's never going to take it back. He's never going to dangle it in front of you and and then pull it back, His forgiveness. His forgiveness is yours completely because of Christ. As we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. You know, you've, you've probably heard it said many times that, and maybe even by many preachers, that, that a, a message can only have an effect on its audience, a sermon that is, if it first affects the preacher. So I, I have no expectation that that any sermon or message that I deliver, if it doesn't impact me, it's not going to have an impact on, on you. And this is why what happened to me this week was so disturbing. I spent much of the day on Wednesday studying, and then Thursday morning I woke up and I asked myself the question, why have I been so unmoved by my sermon prep? Why haven't I been personally encouraged? Why, why haven't I been edified by my study? And what I realized was, that I had misunderstood the emphasis of this passage. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says that we we often fear that the the greatest threat to the church is is theological error. But he said maybe the greatest threat is preachers emphasizing the wrong things. And what I realized was that I had misunderstood this passage when when I started to study it. What I thought it was all about was how to be courageous Christians and how not to be ashamed of Jesus and how to share your faith and so on. But I neglected to see that the real emphasis here is on the cleansing power of Jesus. I saw it as law rather than gospel. I saw it rather than what God has done for us. I saw it as what we're supposed to do. And it failed to really encourage and edify me. Now look at verses 21 through 24. For me to live is Christ, Paul says... And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, he says. So often this statement, for me to live is Christ, is presented as some sort of pious cliche that kind of makes up the whole point of the sermon. And then the preacher says, okay, what about for you? How would you answer this question? For me to live is blank. For me to live is my job, my career. For me to live is my family. 
For me to live is my health. For me to live is my financial security. For me to live is my success. For me to live is my reputation. And I think it's, I think it's fair to ask those questions. And in fact, we probably ought to ask those questions of ourselves. But this, this section cannot be reduced to that. This is Paul's, it's all part of Paul's inner dialogue. It's sort of inner wrestling, his inner wrangling, you might say, that he's putting down on paper. You know, there was a time when it was a very strange occurrence to see someone walking around kind of talking to himself or herself. You know, you would see somebody, you might go somewhere and you, you notice somebody, they're kind of walking along and they're, you notice they're kind of talking, but you don't see anybody else around. It's just kind of a really strange thing. A few years ago, I took my family to Venice Beach in California and uh, like everybody there is just walking around talking to themselves. It's like it's what everybody does, I guess. And so I got back, and I, I didn't realize just how strange this place is. But I got back, and I just kind of shared with the church family. Like I had taken my family to Venice Beach, and there was just this huge collective groan. Like why would a good father do that? It's just you don't do that. People are just everybody's walking around talking to himself, talking to herself. And that used to be a really re- weird thing to see. But now with kind of Bluetooth headsets, you don't really know is she talking to herself or is she in a meeting or what, what's going on? Well, this is Paul. He's kind of talking to himself, but it's in writing. And he's, and he's kind of weighing the merits of staying on earth or, or leaving to be with Jesus. And he says in the last part of 22, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He's not suggesting that, that this is his choice to make. What he's saying is, if it were up to me, what would I do? What would I choose? And then he has this this internal argument back and forth as he considers both. Life, he says in verse 21a, for me is Christ. In other words, my life is defined by the fact that I belong to Jesus. So what makes me who I am, and if, if you're in Christ, what makes you who you are is not where you're from, it's not your education, it's not your family background, it's not your, your skin color, it's not uh, your success. What makes you who, you who you are is you belong to Christ. You are in Christ. And Paul says, for me to live is in Christ. In other words, this is my life. I belong to Jesus. He is my Savior. I am His servant. Then he says in verse 21b, he goes on to say, but death is gain. That is to say, if I die, I get to be with Jesus, which is far better. I'm free from all the constraints on this earth. I'm free from the problem of sin and evil. He says that that has to be an improvement. But then he says in verse 22, but life means more fruitful ministry. In other words, if I'm alive, I can continue to serve and I can continue to minister and shepherd and, and love God's people. And then he says in verse 23, I'm so torn between the two. I don't know what to do. I don't know what I would decide. He goes on in verse 23. He says, death, though, is far better because it means that I'll be in the presence of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But life, verse 24, is necessary for you in that I can continue my ministry. So what is his conclusion Although he really wants to be with Jesus, in order to continue his ministry, he is glad to remain on earth with God's people, serving and leading them. Look at verse 25 again. Convinced of this, he says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. 
Paul's joy in being forgiven, in being counted blameless in Christ, overflows in service to others. He will continue to serve them and minister to them because of the joy he has in Christ and for the sake of their joy. But there's something very beautiful, mysterious about this. Not only does Paul's... So Paul's been made right before God and by faith in Christ. He's been redeemed. He's been rescued from his life. And that overflows in joy for others. But here's the beautiful mystery to this. Paul realizes, as I continue to serve you, my joy will actually increase. Here's our second point, the fruit of true joy. The fruit of true, true joy is found in the service of others, an act which mysteriously produces even more joy in us. What we see here is that for the forgiveness we experience in Christ's saving power results in a joy that is actually intensified as we serve others. Remember the old Sunday school acronym? I don't know, maybe it was a song, I don't remember. But Jesus, others, you, that's the secret to joy. Well, the reason that survived over the years and decades is not just because of its cuteness. This is actually a true, this is a true statement. As we focus on Christ and then others ahead of ourselves, it actually serves to usher in joy. And of course, this is not just a sort of Christian speak. This is the way it works in reality. In fact, even secular psychologists have recognized that happiness, joy comes in serving others. A recent article in Time magazine made the point that scientific research provides compelling data to support the anecdotal evidence that the giving of oneself to others is actually a powerful pathway to lasting happiness. You heard of this thing called F. MRI, uh, it's, it's re- reference to the functional magnetic resonant imaging. So what it is is, and, and I'm speaking way out of turn here, if, if you're an expert in this, you can, you can help me out later, but it's this idea, you, it's this, this thing where the, the brain activity is measured and the sort of neuronal impact, the neurons in the brain as they activate is measured. And what scientists have discovered is that there are three things that cause the neurons in the brain to really react and to, to you know, activate with this great flurry. One is eating. So when we eat, apparently, I don't know how you measure someone's brain activity while they're eating, but, but apparently when you're eating, it causes this increase in your, your activity in your brain. A second one is physical intimacy. And the third one is actually, we, the, the scientists have discovered, is actually when we serve, sacrificially serve other people. It causes the same neuronal activity as if we were eating or being physically intimate. In fact, a summary of one report reads this. Experiments show evidence that altruism, that's just sort of generously giving to others, serving others, is hardwired in the brain. And it's pleasurable. Helping others may just be the secret to living a life that is not only happier, but also healthier, more productive, and meaningful. So we know that if God says it, it must be true. We don't appeal to science as the ultimate authority. We appeal to God's Word. But science, when rightly understood, 
will only serve to confirm what God has said. And God says, if you serve other people, here's what you can experience. You can, you can experience an actual intensity in joy. Now, here's some real practical application. If you're, maybe you're in a bad stretch, you're in a bad spell, you feel, feel overwhelmed, you feel like you have nothing else to give, and because of that, you know, you're, you're down and you're discouraged and you feel empty, maybe what God is calling you to do is to actually think beyond yourself and to actually think about how you might serve or give yourself sacrificially to someone else. I mentioned we're, we're moving into phase two, and I know, because I talk with Roberta all the time and staff, I know that there are needs in children's ministry, there are needs with nursery, and, and maybe, maybe you might, just not, I don't want to guarantee this because I don't know what kids you're going to get, you know, so I'm not going to make any promises here, but uh, if, if you, may, you may actually discover an incredible aspect or sense of joy as you actually give yourself to others as you serve one another. And Paul says there is this incredible paradox here that those who have been redeemed by God in Christ, they necessarily overflow in joy to others, but as they serve others, what they experience is even greater joy. Now look at verses 25 to 26. Again, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, he says, in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul has this incredible dilemma. And I see some of you, you're still thinking about that neuronal activity. We have a lot of scientists here. Move beyond that stuff. We're done with that stuff. The, he has this incredible choice to make, which is not really his choice at all. But he says, if I were to remain here, or have the option to remain or stay, what would I do? And he says, what I must do is remain here for your joy. But then he goes on to say that his joy, neither his joy nor the joy of the Philippians is actually ultimate. Our joy is actually a means to an end. The joy of God's people is a means to an end. And then he says, what is that end? Verse 26, it is the glory of of Christ. And certainly Paul wants to be released for a variety of reasons. He's probably tired of being chained up to a Roman soldier. He's tired of being confined to a small space. And certainly he wants to be released so he can see the Philippians again and, and, and spend time with them. But he wants to be released even more so, so that his return will give the Philippians, whom he loves so much, yet another reason to praise Jesus. He wants to be released, yeah, so they can be re reunited, but, but even more than that, so that the people that he ministers to will actually have more reason to praise Jesus, and Jesus will be glorified. Here's our final point this morning as it relates to the goal of joy. True joy has as its goal the glory of Christ that Christ would be made much of as He is worshipped as the world's only Savior. The Apostle Paul was a very goal-oriented person, and he had a lot of goals. He wanted to travel to certain places to preach the gospel. 
He wanted to be reunited with certain friends. He wanted to see churches planted in, in, in other parts of the Macedonian world. He wanted to get to a place where he was not a financial burden to his supporting church. He had all kinds of goals. But his primary goal was to see Jesus glorified by his life. His ultimate goal was to see the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency of Jesus displayed for the world to see so that lost sinners could find a hope in Christ. We've been working as, as elders for months now on developing this discipleship framework, we're calling it. In other words, we, we, now, we've been sidetracked a little bit because of COVID and so on, but we, we, we believe that what we've been called to do is make disciples who make disciples. And so the questions that are begged by that are, what is a disciple and how is one made? And so that's what we're trying to think of as a church what, is, what would be our discipleship framework? How do we make disciples who reproduce as they make other disciples? And, and we see in the, the Gospels that a disciple is said to do a lot of things. A disciple loves Jesus, obeys Jesus, follows Jesus, serves Jesus, and so on. Worships Jesus. But, but what we see is, I mean, if we, if we really want, this is kind of where we're at here as elders, and we're, we continue to talk about this, is what we see is if we really boil that down to its essence, we might say it this way, that a true disciple treasures Jesus. And so one of the things we want to do is we're making disciples. We want, we, want to, we want to make people, of course, God's the one who does the work, but who actually treasure Jesus. A true disciple treasures Jesus. A true disciple actually treasures Jesus above all else and desires to see Jesus, his Savior, glorified above every other priority. That is to say, and we talked in previous messages about this idea of glory, this Hebrew word kaveh, the weight. We want to see the weight of Jesus' manifold perfections and beauty. We want to see it displayed for the world to see. But again, because God is infinitely wise and His plan transcends our understanding, God Himself says, my ways are not your ways. Even this pursuit is filled with mystery and richness. And here's where we see it here in this passage. When we seek to glorify Jesus as the only Savior of the world, our joy in Him is magnified. So, as Jonathan Edwards said so beautifully in the early part of the 18th century, he said, God's passion for His own glory and His desire for the joy of His people, they're not at odds with each other. These are not competing interests. They work together mysteriously and paradoxically. So when we actually seek the glory of Christ, we're not doing so at the expense of our own joy. We're doing so for the benefit of our own joy. By making much of Jesus, our joy is not diminished. It is actually increased. Jesus himself said it this way, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction in Him, all these things will be added to you. When we pursue the kingdom and seek above all else the glory of the King of that kingdom, Jesus, only then will we experience true joy. And I think it is worth asking the question, when you think about your own pursuits in life, and, I, and this was a convicting thing for me to ask myself this week, 
What is it really that I want to see most? What is it really that is my chief desire? For me, is it growing a church? Is it having a successful family? Is it being financially set for my future? What, what, what is it that really is my chief desire? Because it can be in any number of things. Is it reputation? Or is our chief desire to see our greatest desire in life, to see the one who saved us and redeemed us and sustained us, to see him glorified? Because when that happens, of course it happens again, going back to the early part of this passage, by the power of the Spirit, poured out through the prayers of God's people. When it happens, though, we find that Christ is actually totally sufficient. Jesus, the very Son of God, equal to God the Father in every way. We're going to see this next week. And you talk about a dense passage. We're going to see this in this incredible passage. He became man, submitted his will to the Father's will, and in fact laid down his life for the sake of his wayward creatures. Even to the point of dying on a cross, the most shameful of all deaths, so that we could be free not only from our enslavement to sin, not only from the condemnation of God because we've all fallen short, but also so that we could be saved from our self-centered and joyless ways and all the pursuits that go along with it. And what God offers in Christ is a joy that begins immediately at conversion and continues into the new life on a new earth where we will feast, where we will dance, where we will enjoy fellowship with our Redeemer and all those who have gone on before us who are in Christ, and we will enjoy and worship our Savior forever. May God help us to take comfort in that this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its power. Thank you, Lord, that even though I pursue joy in other things wrongly and sinfully, even though I have other things at times as my greatest goal and priority, you still see me in Christ as someone who is righteous before you, someone who has been declared not guilty. And Father, I pray this morning that you would apply this to our hearts. I pray for those who are who are lacking in joy because of guilt, I pray, Lord, that you would just release that burden and help them to rest unashamed in Christ. And I pray for the person here this morning who's just beaten down with the cares of this world, exhausted at home, exhausted in parenting, maybe has a, a, a nagging illness that won't go away, Father, I pray that you would supernaturally encourage us, both in what we have now, all the riches in Christ that are ours now, and what we can look forward to in the future, this great feast which we will enjoy with our Redeemer and our Savior. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name.